Hey friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. We have this massively growing demand for vegetable oils. The oil yields that you get from palm compared to any of the other vegetable oils are massive. So it's like very, very popular for brands these days to promote themselves as we don't do palm oil, we do coconut oil. And I think everyone buys into that as, oh, they're being really, really sustainable. And Ben and Jerry's massively overplay this. The yields of coconut oil are 20 times lower than palm oil. So if you wanted to meet the same demand for oil from coconut oil, you need 20 times the amount of land. That land is going to have to come from somewhere, and it's going to have to come from the tropics. It's probably going to have to come from a tropical forest. forest. That's geoscientist Dr. Hannah Ritchie, and this is episode 160 of the Plant Proof Podcast. beautiful friends. Welcome back to another episode. Here we are. An absolute pleasure to be here with you. And for those who are tuning in for the first time, thank you so much for finally joining us, gracing us with your presence. I'm Simon Hill, host of this show, nutritionist, physiotherapist, and author. Please do sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. system contributes about a quarter of global greenhouse gas emissions. I like to think of that breakdown in a simplified way as 75% is the energy and industry and then 25% is food. So it's a massive chunk, obviously. There are certain elements of the energy industry system that we, we don't yet have solutions to. So like, we don't know how to have zero carbon air travel, for example. But many of the elements we do, and we can see a path forward on which with more investment and deployment of these technologies, we can decarbonize electricity. We know we can decarbonize electricity. We can shift to electric cars and basically get those emissions down. With food, it's just not clear how we can do that. We need to eat food. The food that we produce nearly always produces emissions. It's just really not clear how we can get rid of those emissions. And when you look forward at future scenarios in terms of the carbon budget that we could emit to stay within our climate targets, in a couple of decades, food will basically consume the entirety of that budget that you're allowed in any one year. So basically, the, the point is it's impossible to meet our climate targets if we don't massively change the way we produce and eat food. So I think that's one, one dimension to it, and that really steals a limelight. But I think there's many other dimensions to it in terms of the water, water global water consumption. 70% of, of water withdrawals come from agriculture, and we know that water stress is going to become an increasing issue. Agriculture is the, the leading driver of biodiversity loss worldwide. Even there, I think the focus often comes on climate change as, as the thing that's killing species across the world. And in some regards, that's true. But actually, at the moment, pales in comparison to just habitat loss driven by agriculture. So I think there's many elements to the impact that our food system has on the environment. It's not just climate change. One of the statistics that really shocks people is that like half of the world's habitable land is used for agriculture. 
in essence, we basically turned the world into a massive farm and obviously didn't used to be like that. And around 75% of that is, is driven by animal agriculture. So either pasture grazing land or cropland to grow animal feed. And the way the world used to look is that all of that farmland was either forest or wild grasslands. Everyone automatically thinks of forest and forests are great, but also wild grasslands and other kind of natural vegetation is also great and essential habitat. So basically over the last 10,000 years, we've kind of reduced our global forests by a third. And that has came basically because of expansion of agriculture. I mean, 95% of deforestation today, basically all of deforestation today is happening in the tropics, where you've got these just really carbon-rich ecosystems which store a lot of carbon. And obviously, when you chop that forest down, that carbon is lost and, and drives climate change. But then also, it's just a massive loss loss of biodiversity, especially these tropical ecosystems are really, really rich in a wide variety of beautiful life, and we're basically just destroying it. What the really like shocking thing to me is just that like many of these species, like once it's gone, it's gone, and you're never going to get it back. Many of the environmental changes you can reverse or reduce in some way, but when it comes to species, once you drive a species to extinction, that's it, gone forever. There's a couple of things that we would use the land for that we would deforest. So you could use it for mining or cities or agriculture, but actually the kind of cities urbanisation component is really, really small. It's basically all agriculture. And within agriculture, there's kind of three dominant drivers. The biggest one is beef by far. I think that's around 40% of of deforestation is driven by beef. One of the key arguments back from that is, yeah, but most of the meat substitutes like soy and stuff, they're also really bad for the environment. They very much think Brazil deforestation equals soy, which is equal to my uh, soy substitute sausages or tofu or tempeh. And that's just a massive, massive misconception. So more than three quarters, or I think 77% of, of soy in the world goes towards animal feed. So a very small amount goes directly to human food. And actually within the diet, the human food, actually most of that goes to vegetable oils. So only this kind of tofu, soy milk, tempeh, meat substitutes, is only 4% of, of global soy production. Uh, so a really, really tiny component. We have this massively growing demand for vegetable oils. And basically, palm oil has stepped up to the plate. And the reason that palm oil has stepped up to the plate is because it's an incredibly productive crop. The oil yields that you get from palm compared to any of the other vegetable oils are massive. So if you compare it to, example, coconut oil. So it's like very, very popular for brands these days to promote themselves as we don't do palm oil, we do coconut oil. And I think everyone buys into that as, oh, they're being really, really sustainable. And they definitely use that as a branding thing. Uh, ben and Jerry's you massively overplay this. Like, we do palm oil free, we do coconut oil. The yields of coconut oil are 20 times lower than palm oil. So if you wanted to meet the same demand for oil from coconut oil, you need 20 times the amount of land. That land is going to have to come from somewhere. And it's going to have to come from the tropics. It's probably going to have to come from a tropical forest. By far, the biggest change you can make is changing what you eat, not where it comes from or how it's produced. Those elements can be important, but from an individual perspective, if there's like one like shining light on, I have like one decision here to make, how do I get the biggest bang for my buck? It's changing what you eat, not where it comes from. One of my biggest frustrations, I think, is that this whole like local food movement 
which there's many positive elements to it and there are many reasons why people would want to shop local or buy local and that's like totally within their value judgment on what matters on their buying decisions but I think the the notion that by buying local you're automatically buying low carbon is just not true and it just doesn't match up with the research and I've had conversations with people in the past like people that I definitely would have thought would have known better because they almost kind of work in tangentially in this space would like very very openly argue that I eat my local meat because it's low carbon because it's local (laughs) and that's just not what the data says there's a very very clear logic there and I don't want to imply that anyone should feel stupid for thinking that like very very logical that flying has a high carbon footprint so if you're flying something from the other side of the world then of course your food will have a a high carbon footprint. Why logically that doesn't stack up is because a tiny, tiny percentage of food is, is flown. So only like 0.16%, I think, of food miles are flown. So like most of it's coming by boat, which is a relatively low carbon footprint. And then the other element on why that's just not as big a deal as people might think it is, is because the production and farm stage of growing food is, is where all of the emissions really are. So those combination of things is why the, the local thing is not as big a deal as, as people might think it is. In terms of the kind of hierarchy of foods in terms of carbon footprint, most of the plant-based foods are, are always at the bottom and have the lowest carbon footprint. But there are actually really large differences between animal source foods, which people, I think, underestimate the effect that not only like reducing the amount of meat that you eat can have, but by substituting one for the other. So the kind of hierarchy is kind of plant-based foods, usually best, followed by kind of eggs. Chicken is also pretty low carbon footprint. Then you would have pork, dairy, and then kind of lamb and beef are like way, way at the top, kind of almost as like massive, massive outliers. So even my overall recommendation is is always to reduce meat and dairy consumption if you want to reduce your carbon footprint. Substituting chicken for beef or lamb has, has a massive impact. If people feel like they can't go fully vegan or, or vegetarian, then, then, then that substitution actually makes a massive difference. Seafood is a little bit of a mixed bag. You can get some kind of aquaculture systems which have a really high footprint just because they need really high energy inputs. But in general, fish can have like a, a pretty small carbon footprint. I think a reasonable way of thinking about it is that like a lot of the reason that livestock are, are quite environmentally intensive, not just in terms of carbon, but also land, is that they're quite inefficient at transforming vegetables into meat or or dairy products. So if you think about how much you need to feed a cow for it to even gain one kilogram of beef you would get out of that, like most of the energy and protein there is is lost. And, And when I say lost, I mean just like keeping the animal alive, like it has a base metabolic rate which you're just needing to feed it calories to keep it alive. And then any additional calories will get transformed into weight gain that you can then get back as a product. But that overall process is very inefficient. It's more inefficient for the larger the animal, which is why beef is generally worse than pork is a bit better. And then chicken, the smallest animal, is generally better. Most fish are like pretty small and have like that efficiency of converting feed into product at the end of it is quite efficient. So overall, like fish can have a, a pretty small carbon footprint. But as I said, some of the aquaculture systems can have a quite a large footprint if you're if you're not careful. Like I know a lot of the labels and stuff on foods these days are quite confusing. 
But going for fish that are kind of like line and pole caught rather than dredge is a good barometer to go by. That's kind of the key thing that I look for. Um, and knowing a couple of the types of fish that are, are less depleted than others is also useful. In terms of protein requirements, I think a little bit of what the environmental movement on this gets a little bit wrong is like I've seen loads of papers that have claimed that everyone in the world eats above the protein requirements, which for a lot of countries, especially high-income countries, we eat way, way more than the protein requirements. For poorer countries, if you go purely on the basis of like total protein, I think the requirements like 0.8 grams per kilogram, which is like overall not that much. But the problem there is that the diets in many of these countries are 80 plus percent cereals. There's no correction in that calculation for um, protein quality. I think that almost gets kind of played against this debate from people on the other side that would argue that you can't get your protein requirements from a vegan diet, which is obviously just not the case. You can meet even with the correcting for amino acid profile and stuff. If you have the right mix of foods there, you can definitely get your protein requirements on a vegan diet. Many of the diets that are eaten around the world today, especially in poorer countries, they're meeting the total protein requirements, but they're not getting the right variety in there to get the protein quality. And I think that makes it very easy for people on the other side to, to attack the kind of vegan diet, which is why I think that many of these meat substitutes, cell-based proteins could play a really big role, but only if we really, really massively drive down the costs and massive, ma- massively scale up scalability, if they can massively undercut the price of meat. And meat there is almost a status symbol of wealth and richness and emulating what we have in the West. And I think if we don't manage to get these other technologies to scale and, and able to undercut that, I think they're going to go down a very similar pathway that we've been down in the West. The curve there is going to be in terms of scalability. The more and more we make, the cheaper and cheaper it gets. But I think there's a a massive, I mean, it's always the case with technologies, they're just in a massive initial phase of development and scale up that is going to be quite expensive to begin with, but will get progressively cheaper over time, hopefully. When people think of like water stress or water conservation, their automatic thought goes to like turning off the tap when they're brushing their teeth or having a shorter shower which in some local contexts, especially in dense cities and kind of drought-prone areas, is definitely a thing. But globally, I'm kind of macro level, most of the water we use is used for agriculture. I think that's the, the biggest thing to, to keep in mind. Many of the trends are, are very similar to what we'd see for like carbon or, or land. So beef, lamb, dairy has a, has a high water footprint. Nuts also have a high water footprint. Um, that's probably one thing to be slightly aware of if you're going more plant-based that there is potentially a, a bit of a water cost in terms of if you're eating a lot of nuts and substitutes we are a pretty much a water planet but the the amount of available fresh water resources that we can tap into is much much more limited and especially in local context i mean the key point with water is it's it's very hard to move around i mean we have a lot of water here in scotland but you can't just ship that really across the world that's going to be compounded by increased extremities in terms of water availability, either way too much at a given point in time in terms of floods or extreme drought. Uh, that combination of not having water exactly when you need it is a big issue. 
And then also water quality. So some of the kind of impacts of climate change, especially nearer coast, there is the potential that there you can basically really lower the water quality in terms of influx of kind of saline water from coastal lines. I think on the water stuff, there's a whole other lens, much more on the producer side of things in terms of how we implement irrigation technologies and whether we can do desalinization. So I think there's a whole other like technological producer lens to the water story. A question I always get a lot is like, which type of milk should I drink? Because the whole vegan or plant-based milks are becoming a much bigger thing, which is great. But there's now like a range of options. I think the point there is that any of the the plant-based options have a better environmental profile than, than cow's milk on every metric whether it's land use or water or uh, CO2 emissions. So if you're substituting for any plant-based milk, it's a good thing. And then you can get into nuances of which one is better or worse. Uh, I mean, oat, oat milk generally comes out best on most metrics, but all are pretty good. My overall barometer on how to reduce the impacts of agriculture is to use the least amount of land possible. Like I think that whether we're growing crops or, or raising livestock, I think a big thing is we just need to massively reduce the amount of farmland that we have. We need to give it back for forests to regrow and wild grasslands to regrow. And from an animal livestock perspective, that's cramming them into a tighter space. That reduces the amount of land that we use for agriculture so we can grow other stuff and forests and trees. And then the other dimension to that is like it comes back to this discussion we had on like the unfortunate reality that animals burn calories staying alive. They also burn calories moving. The less they move, the less you need to feed them to produce meat. So from like a really horrible perspective, like the best and most efficient way to grow meat is to stop animals moving and make them gain weight as fast as possible, which basically means cramming them into a smaller space. The, the the research on the regenerative agriculture is, the whole argument there is that you can basically sequester lots of carbon in the soil. And generally, the, the research doesn't really back that up. Some systems can store more carbon than other pasture systems, but often come at the cost of more land. So although you might store more per, per hectare, the fact is you're, you're still using much more land. And my general barometer on this is use as, li- as little land as possible. So there are massive trade-offs there that I think just don't stack up in the overall debate. The reality is, like for at least for many, many years, we're going to continue producing beef. Like That's just a reality. And there are better ways of doing it. And we should be picking the systems where it has the, the lowest footprint. The way to minimise the environmental cost of your diet, my advice would always be vegan. So I think my overall advice would be to start with substituting beef and dairy for, for chicken. And then I think once people actually start taking those initial steps, become much more open to seeing that there are a wide range of plant-based foods that are actually not just like eating lettuce and lentils. They see that there's a wide range of incredibly tasty and nutritious foods and they get more and more into it and then actually continue shifting towards a more plant-based diet. My biggest concern is always with pace. I think it's changing. But I think it's still changing way too slow if we want to actually make a massive difference in the next few decades. If we don't change how we eat and how we produce our food in the next few decades, we'll miss our climate targets and we will lose 
massive amounts of precious forests and ecosystems. I mean, that's just the reality. I think on the climate stuff overall, governments are waking up a bit and taking a bit more action. I think, I think, I still think energy hogs the whole discussion on climate, which in some sense makes makes sense because it's seventy five percent of emissions. But the food component is so integral to us meeting our targets that you can't you can't neglect it. But I think it's quite easy for governments to neglect it. The narrative of the whole energy story for governments is quite easy. Like people like the story that we can get off fossil fuels and we can produce our energy from nice solar panels and in this really clean way. I think. With the food stuff, it often seems a lot more personal and there's like a bit more contention there in terms of governments not wanting to mandate consumer choices. And I've also had this issue with supermarkets, for example, they also don't want to like choice edit for their their customers or a bit less keen to get involved in that discussion. So I think there's a bit more resistance from governments there. What I would like to see from governments in the next couple of decades, I think behaviours and attitudes are changing. I'm concerned that they're not changing quick enough. I don't think they're they're changing quick enough that we we would get there from that alone. So I think we need these technological changes on on substitutes and and cell-based meats to come in and, and become pretty cheap so that the choice is almost inevitable. But there are a couple of additional things that could help get us there one is a carbon tax i would like to see a carbon tax because that just again massively shifts the economic incentives to to eat less carbon intensive foods but also gives a benefit to you know the up-and-coming technologies that could be lower carbon exacerbates the kind of price differential there and i think there needs to be massive investments on just improving agricultural productivity in lower income countries So there needs to be a massive push on how can we increase crop yields in sub-Saharan Africa, for example. And the other one additional thing that I think richer countries need to contribute to is this opportunity cost of not cutting down forests. I think for lower-income countries, they're not just cutting down the forest for no reason. They're cutting down the forest because they need to grow food and they need an income. And if there's not an alternative economic source there, it's inevitable that that's going to happen. So there needs to be some, I mean, there's the kind of red program. It's almost like a kind of mechanism, pot of money, where basically rich countries almost try to pay for opportunity costs for poorer countries not to cut down their forest. It's kind of like a carbon offset scheme, but by not cutting down the forest in the first place. So basically, if you're a farmer in Brazil, I will pay you money not to cut down the forest. So I'm paying for the opportunity costs of the food that you could have grown on that land. And I think if we're going to, if we're to stop tropical deforestation, I think that's kind of inevitable that we need some economic mechanism there that, that makes up for these costs. So I think those are the key things that I think we need to address in the next few decades. The really significant changes that shape the world, whether that's the environment or poverty or health, are these kind of gradual changes that develop day by day by day, but one after the other, which on any given day might not seem like a lot, but cumulatively over years or decades is absolutely massive and absolutely transformative. The odds are a little bit stacked against us and we shouldn't underestimate the scale of that challenge, but this is basically the first time in human history that actually it looks like it could be possible if we, we make the right choices. I'm still optimistic that we that we can do it. There we go. How did that one land for you? I hope that you found it interesting 
instructive, illuminating, all the things. Of course, if you did, please do share with your friends and family on the socials. The more people that we can help together, the better. And while you're there, make sure that we're connected too. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at plant underscore proof. That's at plant underscore proof. And on that lovely note, it's time to bring this one to a close. Thank you so much for hanging out with me. I appreciate you and I look forward to repeating it all again in a few days time. Until then, remember, more plants, my friends, more plants.